0: Hello and welcome to Medicine the Truth, one of our four weekly podcasts in our Fixing Healthcare podcast series. I'm Jeremy Corr, host of the popular New Books and Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a contributor at Forbes.com, a best selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. His book, Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients, continues to receive industry-wide praise. All profits will be donated to Doctors Without Borders. Information on a broad range of medical topics can be found on his website, robertperlmd.com. Robbie, listeners are enjoying this blend of the latest in medicine combined with ongoing updates on COVID-19. What's the current news in each category?
1: Jeremy, the categories aren't as distinct as they might have been in the past. We are likely to see a recurrence of the triple-demic, which you may remember from last year, struck our nation, although estimates are that it will not be quite as severe this year as it was in 2022. The reason for the optimism is that this year it is predicted at the overlap of the three viruses won't be as precise or specific or identical as it had been in 2022. Last year, we saw all three viruses, the COVID-19, the flu, and RSV, which is the respiratory syncytial virus, peaking all in the latter part of December, beginning of January. This year, COVID-19 is expected to peak a few weeks earlier, at the end of November and the start of December, with the other two peaking in January and February. That will separate the peaks by about four to six weeks and spread out the demand for hospital beds across a much longer time period. Moreover, as we've discussed in Medicine the Truth multiple times, we now have vaccines against each of the three viruses, including most recently FDA approval for the vaccine against RSV. If the majority of people in the United States get vaccinated, that should make the winter much more manageable with far lower mortality. The current forecast, that's for a total of 1.15 million hospitalizations from infections uh, uh, generated by these viruses. And that's three and a half times more than the number of people requiring inpatient admission for respiratory infections prior to the pandemic. Researchers predict that the number of hospitalizations will peak at 57,000 per week at the end of January, 2024, and that will be less than the 80,000 per week peak that we saw
0: last year. How about a COVID story?
1: Jeremy, the biggest COVID story is the updated vaccine and its continued efficacy. As we've discussed, the current version is designed specifically for the new variants, and it appears to be more effective against the currently circulating coronaviruses than the oldest shots. Probably as a result, more people are getting the vaccine, most likely with the confidence that it will do an excellent job of protecting them. In the first week of this new monovalent vaccine, 1.8 million Americans rolled up their sleeves and received the booster, which is more than the number of shots given in a comparable time period last year. And the research data confirms that perception. Moderna, which along with Pfizer has been given FDA approval for its updated vaccine, the company reports that it appears, that this vaccine appears to be effective against the BA.2.86 variant. And that's the strain that epidemiologists had feared might increase the number of severe cases due to its ability to evade prior immunity. And the company reported that there was an 8.7-fold increase neutralizing antibodies after vaccination. Both the vaccine manufactured by Moderna and the one from Pfizer use mRNA technology that corresponds to the last major Omicron variant, the XBB.1.5. This monovalent single variant focused vaccine replaces the bivalent vaccines, which included both the original mRNA and the mRNA corresponding to more recent viruses. Based on the research the CDC now recommends that the monovalent vaccine be given this fall to everyone over the age of six months. The risk of vaccination is very low and the potential benefit at preventing severe infection and minimizing the risk of death, it's large. Although as we just discussed, the peak number of infections have yet to arrive. Already we're seeing this fall an increase in hospitalizations continually rising over the past two months. A fear expressed by public health officials is that Americans will not get boosted because they're gonna believe that their prior immunization or prior infection will serve as adequate protection. And this is unlikely to be the case based upon the newest data. That data say that although vaccination is highly effective, its benefits wane progressively over time and they drop by about 65% to only 25% effective by six months later. Going forward, it's most likely that the CDC's approach relative to COVID vaccines will be to treat it similar to the flu. That means updating the vaccine once a year in the fall to better match the most risky virus strains that are circulating. Currently, both Moderna and Pfizer are developing a single combined vaccine that protects against both COVID and the flu.
0: Speaking of infections, I heard there is now some type of morning after pill to prevent sexually transmitted diseases. What's the story?
1: Jeremy, as listeners know, there is a so-called morning after pill, which protects against pregnancy after unprotected sex. And when it comes to AIDS prevention, there's a different pill that can help people avoid developing AIDS after exposure to the virus during sexual relations. Expanding the concept, the CDC is now recommending a widely used antibiotic called doxycycline and say it is effective if given within 72 hours after unprotected sex, particularly in high-risk situations. The agency is currently recommending this approach for gay and bisexual men and transgender women who have had an STD in the past and who believe they might have been exposed to a bacterial infection during recent sex. The reason is that almost half of the infections in the nation come from a relatively small number of individuals. Although there wasn't enough evidence of benefit for the CDC to recommend this antibiotic after every unprotected sexual encounter, the guidelines may expand in the future. In 2021, there were 1.6 million cases of chlamydia, more than 700,000 cases of gonorrhea, and nearly 177,000 cases of syphilis in the United States. And together, they cost $1.1 billion in direct medical expenses. And amongst babies, the number born with syphilis has soared. And last year, 3,000 newborns were infected. Each of the diseases are caused by a bacterium. So hitting it early after exposure with an antibiotic is likely to be effective. And this particular antibiotic has been used extensively for other diseases with almost no side effects or complications. In contrast, the incidence of these sexually transmitted diseases is rising with gonorrhea having doubled in incidence over the past decade. More specifically, research from the CDC shows that this approach reduces the likelihood Of developing chlamydia or syphilis by 90% and reducing the risk of developing gonorrhea after exposure by 55%. At the same time, there are critics of this approach. They worry that there will be antibiotic resistance developing after short-term use, and that should these bacteria become resistant to the antibiotic, that would cause an even greater health problem than The sexually transmitted diseases.
0: What's new in the rest of medicine?
1: Jeremy, the biggest story is the magnitude of the expected increase in healthcare costs for next year. It's now estimated to be 6.5%. This will be the largest such increase in more than a decade. And it aligns with what the federal government projects for the next eight years. According to actuaries, assuming that the trajectory continues total healthcare costs will rise from 4.3 trillion to 7.2 trillion dollars by 2031 the increase is being fueled by a growing percentage of older individuals a persistent labor shortage and demand that was generated during the coronavirus pandemic i don't see that our nation will be able to afford 3 Trillion dollars more over such a relatively short time frame. And my fear is that in response, patients will be forced to pay more dollars out of pocket and businesses will shrink their benefits. Ultimately, unless the American healthcare system can improve and unless it can become more efficient, the health of our nation will decline. Already we've seen medical expenses become the number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States. Along those lines, Jeremy, let me ask you, as a businessman, how do you view the challenges of providing healthcare to your employees while having to keep the price for your company's services at acceptable
0: levels? Robby, as a small business owner, this is especially difficult. It is difficult to offer competitive pay and benefits as compared to larger organizations. Offering employer health insurance is extremely expensive, and as a small business or startup who is looking into offering benefits, the options are basically to offer insurance that is expensive with a high deductible or not offer health insurance at all. I think the cost of offering benefits to employers is something that prevents a lot of potential entrepreneurs from starting a business or scaling it once they've started it. One of the things I think that is not discussed enough when it comes to the cost of healthcare in America is just how much the cost of providing employee benefits actually prevents potential entrepreneurs from taking that risk of starting and growing a business. Even if they're able to start a business and grow it, how are they able to offer uh, competitive prices for their goods and services when much larger offer organizations can offer them for cheaper partially due to these costs? And if they can't offer competitive benefits and wages, how can they attract the best talent needed for them to grow and thrive as a small business? Not only is this preventing so many new and innovative businesses from starting up, it's also part of the reason the middle class is dying. Robbie, a listener wondered if there was any new information on the government's plan to negotiate drug prices.
1: Jeremy, this topic is likely to be newsworthy on a nearly continuous basis for the next two years, at least. But so far those pushing greater affordability, they seem to have the upper hand for the first time in over two decades. It would appear that there is now a major commitment from elected officials to make pharmaceutical drug prices affordable. To this end, in an unexpected development, the Department of Health and Human Services has negotiated a deal with the company that manufactures the antiviral monoclonal antibody Called Regeneron. That deal will require that the US list price be no higher than in other high-income pure nations. And in return for agreeing to this pricing, the company will receive research funding to develop a new variant-proof antibody treatment capable of preventing or treating COVID. Specific to the 10 drugs which congressional legislation has made negotiable starting in 2026, the Department of Justice once again pointed out that it already has the ability to negotiate hospital and physician prices. So it asks, what's different about having the same ability when it comes to medications? Most legal scholars that I've read think that the argument is strong. Although as both you and I know, The political nature of the judiciary process today often deviates from logic.
0: Bobby, along those lines, what about the legislation itself and the lawsuit filed against it?
1: Jeremy, there were two big events that recently happened. The first was that a federal judge, one who was a Trump appointee, denied the request by the Chamber of Commerce to delay negotiations over Price until the legal challenges were concluded. Delaying would set the government's ability to negotiate back significantly as appeals arguing against the constitutionality of the Inflation Reduction Act are likely to reach the Supreme Court. In the ruling, the judge supported the argument that there was no constitutional requirement for companies to engage in business with the federal government. As such, any drug company that did not want to participate, it could choose not to do so. In the decision, the judge wrote, Quote, participation in Medicare, no matter how vital it may be to a business's model, is a completely voluntary choice. Of course, listeners should remember that there are multiple other lawsuits pending and a ruling in favor of the drug companies. in any one of them could halt the process, which did begin last week. And to that point, all 10 drug companies have already committed to engaging in negotiations with the government. And each has submitted data on its drugs, which is the first step in the government's new approach to being able to rein in the cost and make the expenses in the United States for pharmaceuticals somewhat equivalent to what exists in other equally wealthy pure nations.
0: During the pandemic, people could obtain COVID-19 testing kits at no cost from the federal government. Given that cases are rising again, a listener wanted to know the status of that program. Jeremy, the free testing
1: kit distribution program ended when COVID-19 was no longer a public health emergency threat. However, the Biden administration has recently reopened the program, sending free kits to any household that requests it and spending $600 million to spur test kit production. As we mentioned earlier, COVID hospitalizations are rising with the number of patients being hospitalized now above 20,000 nationwide. For listeners who are interested, they can order four free tests for their household through covidtests.gov. The current thinking is that this quantity should suffice until the end of the year when another decision will be made about offering additional home testing kits. In total, the government expects to provide Americans with 200 million tests. Jeremy, how likely do you think patients will be when it comes to completing home testing? I've heard people say, if I feel very sick, I stay home, whether it's COVID or not. And if I don't feel that sick, I just go to work. I don't want to be tested.
0: Robbie, I hear this a lot, too. I know some people who will take an at-home test as soon as they have a sniffle. I think most people at this point, though, if they feel sick, they just stay home until they feel better and treat it as if they have any other contagious disease. They feel like it doesn't matter if they have COVID or the flu or a bad cold. They'll stay at home, rest, stay hydrated and uh, go to the doctor if the disease lasts a long time or get worse or gets worse. I feel like the longer COVID is around and the more just a disease we get from time to time, like the flu or common cold, people will do uh, at home tests for it less and less. Robbie, a listener wrote to us about a patient we discussed in our last episode who, after death, had a pig kidney transplanted with a very encouraging result. She asked whether the same type of procedure has been done for heart transplantation.
1: Jeremy, research is progressing in this area. A team from the University of Maryland recently transplanted a genetically engineered pig heart into a patient with encouraging results. The organ pumped blood and kept the patient alive without any additional mechanical assistance for 61 days. The previous patient who received the pig heart lived for only 40 days and then died from complications. With each patient modification, genes that contribute to rejection are eliminated and increasingly viral contaminants that can spread infection to an immunocompromised patient are being avoided. For patients like this one who isn't eligible for a standard transplant due to vascular bleeding difficulties, a xenograft transplant, meaning one from another species, is a potential life saver. The next step will be for researchers to demonstrate that they can transplant a pig's heart into a baboon and prevent rejection or other life-threatening complications for a full year. And once they can do that, it's expected that they will get approval for a more formal human clinical trial, potentially leading to expanded clinical use.
0: Several listeners wanted to know whether they should get their COVID and flu vaccines at the same time.
1: The current recommendations include the option to receive both the flu and the new and the new COVID shot at the same time. According to the CDC, receiving the two vaccines at the same visit is safe. Several health experts have pointed out that giving more than one vaccine is typical for kids and complications are very rare. According to a study from Israel, the risk of any problem, including simply pain at the injection site, rises by only 0.2% when both vaccines are given at the same day. And follow-up two months later demonstrate that none of the people who received the two shots had developed COVID-19. The main argument against getting two vaccines at the same time this year is the relative timing of the virus seasons, as we discussed. With COVID coming almost two months before the peak of the flu, maximizing protection would mean getting the COVID vaccine in October or November and the flu in December or January. But getting both early is far better than receiving one and then not returning for the second. Along those lines, there's a new study from the CDC that among adults over the age of 60 who become infected, the severity of illness and the chances of dying are greater as a result of RSV infection than from COVID. It's hard to think about having to see a healthcare professional on three different occasions so that a patient can get first COVID, then flu, Then RSV, combining these in some way, specifically by putting together the COVID shot with the flu shot and then returning for the RSV shot, may prove to be the most efficacious and successful approach to minimizing hospitalizations and prolonging and preserving life.
0: Robbie, I heard that two researchers who developed the mRNA technology for vaccination were recently awarded with the Nobel Prize for Medicine. What can you tell listeners about them?
1: Jeremy, the Nobel Prize in Medicine was given to two scientists, Catalin Carrico and Drew Weissman. Together, they laid the foundation for the current mRNA vaccines. Carrico is a researcher who could see the potential of this technology. And she worked tirelessly for 25 years to overcome the difficulties of making the vaccine biocompatible in humans. Along the way, she met scorn people didn't think that fragile piece of genetic material would ever have positive applications. Weissman is an immunologist. He recognized how this technology could be applied to the creation of human vaccines. And it was the combination of the complementary expertise that allowed the idea to be transformed into practice, setting the stage for its application in the fight against the coronavirus. Of interest, Kariko's work was undervalued by the University of Pennsylvania, where she worked in the research lab for most of her career. As a result, she was never given tenure. She was demoted, and she was forced to retire a decade ago. But simultaneously, the university patented the processes she developed and has earned tens of millions of dollars for the sale of rights to use it. She was the 13th woman to ever win a Nobel Prize in medicine. Jeremy, the power of an mRNA vaccine is that rather than having to penetrate the nucleus of the cell. It can instruct the cell to manufacture the protein while it's floating in the surrounding cytoplasm. Early on in their research endeavors, the mRNA was injected and research animals produced an intense inflammatory reaction, making it completely inappropriate for clinical use. But by modifying a small part of the genetic material, Currico figured out how to make the approach applicable and safe. And that's what allowed it to be rapidly brought to people when the COVID-19 pandemic began. And with that problem having been solved, new uses for the technology. Vaccines for cancer treatment, vaccines for rare diseases, they're just on the horizon. And a major opportunity for the technology, according to Weissman, is to treat sickle cell disease. Patients with this problem don't have the right gene to produce an essential red blood cell protein, an mRNA vaccine could restore that production and provide the patient with the complex biological compound needed. To bestow the award, the committee cited their work for contributing to, quote, the unprecedented rate of vaccine development during one of the greatest threats to human health in modern times.
0: Robbie, you've written before about how difficult it can be for medical researchers to get recognition for innovative solutions. What is that?
1: Jeremy, I think you're referencing a different set of Nobel Prize winners in medicine. In this case, it was two physicians from Australia, Barry Marshall and Robin Warren. They noted that in patients with gastric and duodenal ulcers, that often the crater was surrounded by bacteria, more specifically a particular bacterium called H. pylori. At the time, the treatment for ulcers involved a complex and complicated operation, fraught with difficulties, It removed much of the acid producing cells from the stomach. It altered the GI tract in ways that frequently led to severe diarrhea and even malabsorption. Physicians at the time criticized Marshall and Warren's research. They pointed out that the bacteria could just be contaminants or maybe secondary invaders once a crater had been formed. Dr. Marshall, in a heroic effort to prove that H. pylori was the cause of the problem, personally drank a petri-full of these bacteria. And then had a colleague pass a gastroscope through his mouth into his stomach to document that having drank these bacteria, ulcers were now present. And then he went on to show that the peptic ulcer disease could be treated with antibiotics in place of surgery. You know, it's rare that practicing clinicians ever win the Nobel Prize in Medicine. But these two courageous individuals, they did so. What's tragic in their stories and in the description of the difficulties that Dr. Carrico experienced was how hard it can be to complete research projects that are outside the bounds of what most researchers think of or how clinicians practice. You know, I wonder how often brilliant life-saving solutions are missed because people give up trying to buck the system and trying to get past the restrictive culture. Just imagine if Carrico and Weissman had quit in the face of the resistance they had encountered.
0: Robbie, you were the CEO and Kaiser Permanente with relative labor peace. Now, 75,000 employees are on strike. What's happening,
1: Jeremy, First, let me point out that since I stepped down as CEO six years ago, I have no inside information except what I read in the media. My interpretation, though, is that what's happening in healthcare is similar to what we've seen in a variety of labor contracts, including the United Auto workers, screenwriters, and a variety of other work stoppages. Following the Great Recession 13 years ago, concessions were given by labor to address the financial challenges companies face. Now that a decade of low inflation and business expansion has made organizations successful, labor wants major increases in wages, reversal of two-tier wage structures, and restitution of generous benefits. Of course, the details are industry and company specific. But in each case, management worries about the impact that a 30 or 40% wage increase will have on consumers and their ability to remain viable in the context of the current high rate of inflation and potential recession. Maybe it's because I'm a physician, but I see a healthcare strike as different from one in the auto or streaming services industries. You can decide not to buy an American car if the prices soar, and you can cancel your Netflix subscription, but you can't avoid getting medical care when you're sick. As a nation, we're experiencing major economic challenges with a doubling of our national debt last year and growing unaffordability of medical care for half of the nation. The solution, I believe, is to find ways to increase productivity through greater efficiency and increased flexibility. Traditionally though, unions have opposed these efforts. And when it comes to strikes, there's a vociferous rhetoric from both sides. I would hope that when it comes to this work stoppage, innovative solutions that benefit patients can be championed by both labor and management. I worry that in the current economic environment, unless they work collaboratively, that won't happen. Robbie, any final thoughts? Jeremy, on recent episodes, we've talked about how the retail giants, Amazon, CVS, Walmart, they're entering into healthcare and they are poised to take it over, displacing the current incumbents. Many doctors with whom I've spoken, they are in denial about the role that these companies can play. I thought of this last week when Costco joined the group of new entrants. The company announced that for $29, Costco members could get a primary care telehealth visit with no wait time. An equivalent visit in most communities would run in the hundreds of dollars. Costco will be offering mental health visits, which I assume would last 50 minutes and will cost $79. What many people don't realize is the overwhelming majority of individuals in high deductible health plans rarely use their insurance to pay the bills. Instead, they pay out of pocket for all of their medical care The Costco option now provides an alternative for these individuals and their families, an alternative that's far less expensive than seeing a doctor in an office and much easier to access. A few weeks ago, I was talking with the head of a prominent academic healthcare system. He acknowledged that the service provided by his organization was terrible, but he quickly added, patients are happy to wait for care. I predict that as the retail giants play a bigger and bigger role in medicine, he and his institution are in for a rude awakening. Of course, it's possible that there'll be a few people for whom superior medical quality, at least what they believe to be superior medical quality, will be worth the inconvenience and the cost. But I predict that for a growing number of individuals, they will be looking for inexpensive, convenient alternatives. And companies whose business model focuses on delighting the customer and likely to displace many of the traditional winners. I'd like to believe that the challenges faced by both the providers and the recipients of medical care today, it's transitory and it will abate in the future. But instead, I think that these inefficiencies are embedded into the system and embedded inside the economics of healthcare today. And if nothing is done, rather than abating, I think these difficulties will become greater and greater.
0: As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, FixingHealthcarePodcast.com, and in all podcast apps, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. To submit a question or comment to the host, please visit the contact page on our website or send us a message on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, and have a great day.